Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first 11 verses, continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Hear now God's holy word. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another, Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word and we ask you to indeed wash us and transform us and change us with this encounter uh, with your word. Father, guide my lips and my tongue that I might be delivered from all error. Uh, Help me to forget anything that would not be helpful and may only that which is true and edifying and and worthy uh, remain. Father, strengthen us now, we pray, with this time in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What is it that attracts people to courtroom dramas. Some of the most memorable TV series, some of the most beloved books and and movies are largely set in a courtroom. Some Some of our favorites, To Kill a Mockingbird, A Few Good Men, TV shows like Perry Mason and Law and Order, which has been going on for 37 years now, I think. Uh, Matlock, well, maybe not Matlock, but uh, Matlock is one of those. John Grisham has built an entire career writing novels about scrappy, starving young lawyers who bring down big, bad institutions. We love these books and movies and series because there's a part of us that wants to see justice prevail. We want to see the bad guy get what's coming to him and we, we want the innocent to be vindicated. We want, we want them to get what uh, is coming to them as well. And, and if we're ever in such a situation, if we're ever in a place where we need to be defended, we want to know that we have the right kind of lawyer. We want one of these good lawyers from one of these, you know, I'll take Matlock if that's the guy I need, you know. We want the right lawyer who will argue our case and defend us, hopefully with that, you know, really cool aha gotcha moment where everybody, everybody in the courtroom goes, and then, yeah, he's innocent and he can walk free. Well, the Christians in Corinth had a deep thirst for justice such that it produced in them a lifestyle of litigiousness. They were dragging each other into the civil courts over disputes that should have been handled within the church. Paul opens up this new topic by writing, how dare you take legal matters and disputes before the unrighteous 
and not before saints. This is the same kind of incredulity that he opened the previous chapter with, where he says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And here he says, I can't believe that you are taking disputes to the heathens for them to arbitrate. What are you thinking? Now, he's not denying that they have legitimate complaints, nor is he saying, don't ask for justice if you've been wrong. That's not what he's saying at all. The primary point of contention here is that they are taking it to the heathen. They are taking their cases before the unrighteous. You've seen the uh, statue of Lady Justice with the blindfold and the balance scales. That statue is based on the uh, Greek goddess Dike. Uh, or Diki, uh, the goddess of moral justice. And of course she's blindfolded because justice is supposed to be impartial. Justice is supposed to use fair weights and measures. But in Greece, this really was a joke. Nobody took the god seriously and justice uh, was, was, was a joke as well. Justice was blind in the sense that justice couldn't see the truth. She had no perception of wisdom or justice. But when it came to impartiality, she really wasn't blind at all. Lady Justice was wearing her blindfold around her neck as a scarf because status and money gave great advantage to those who filed suits in ancient Greece. Those who availed themselves of lawsuits were almost certainly upper-class people and they hired the best orators to argue and defend their cases, which means that the court proceedings in Greece were, were much more of a spectacle than a fair place to find justice. They were highly entertaining, but not somewhere you would go to find justice met. The Greeks loved the drama. They loved the intrigue of the court proceedings. Greek cities had continuous legal battles and the people ate this stuff up. One historian says that everyone in the city of Athens was a lawyer. And here's why. If you had a problem with your neighbor, and you wanted to settle it, the first process you were engaged in was called private arbitration. You pick someone to argue your case, your neighbor picks someone, and these two select a third, and this committee of three were supposed to solve the problem together, and you were supposed to abide by their decision. But if they couldn't come to any agreement, then the case was turned over to a court, and they assigned you public arbitrators. Every man who was 60 years old served the city as a public arbitrator. And if, and if they couldn't get it worked out, then a jury of men, a jury of your peers of over 30 years old would be called. For, now, for some small cases, the jury could be around 200 men. You think, you know, it's, it's hard to convince a jury of 12. You know, another great movie, 12 Angry Men. Imagine dealing with 200 angry men. Uh, and, and that's for a small case. For some bigger cases, they would, uh, the juries would be, would be composed of anywhere from 1,000 to 6,000 men, a jury of 6,000 people, a committee of 6,000 people to try to sort these things out. With juries this big, that means everybody in the city got involved in the process. So from the time you were 30, you were involved in this constant legal wrangling. The study of law was a big deal because just about everybody was a lawyer. Even if you weren't personally involved in a particular case, you were still walking around sharing your opinion on it with everyone else and participating in the discussions. You see, this was a way of life. It was much more 
uh, uh, relevant for them, this whole legal system and this legal wrangling and this litigiousness, it was part of their uh, part of their culture, and it was big, big entertainment for them, much bigger for them even than it is for us. Now in Corinth, the people are so used to this that when they become Christians and they're converted to Christ and they, they assemble as a church, they track all of this in from the world. And here they are in Corinth, Paul finds, they are suing one another They're taking their private matters public and they're arguing with each other in front of the whole city. How embarrassing. Taking their personal private cases before these judges was in effect saying, these courts can do something that the church can't. This court has wisdom that the church doesn't possess. The church takes care of your soul. The city takes care of everything else. The government takes care of everything else. Paul tells them how ridiculous this is. He says, don't you know that saints will judge the world? Don't you know that we will even judge angels? The prophet Daniel talks about the day when the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. There's this theme throughout the scriptures of all all dominion and authority and judgment being handed over to the saints. Well, this is happening, and this is slowly happening with the coming of Christ's kingdom through the church. In Revelation 2, the Lord Jesus speaks to the church at Thyatira. He says, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Now we've talked many times about how in fact the church leads the culture, how the church rules the culture. We are the ecclesia. We are the assembly of of city council people here. Uh, The church is over, over the culture. And if the culture is suffering, if the world is suffering, it's because the church is not being faithful. It's because we're not doing our job. So Jesus told the apostles that they were going to reign on thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel. And Paul references the fact that the righteous are going to practice uh, and participate in the judgment of the wicked world, even the judgment of the angels. In verse 3, he says, don't you even know that we're going to judge angels? Which I understand to mean the fallen angels. Jude references that in his small epistle. He says, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under the darkness for the judgment of the great day. These, these fallen angels are going to be judged, and Paul says, you're going to participate in that. I don't know how that all works out. I don't have a timeline for that, but we're building these pieces and seeing that somehow, in some way, God is increasing the authority and the judgment and the dominion of his people. Now, part of the problem here in Corinth is that they don't understand the position of the church in the world. If they're going to rule over angels, then why should they feel like they don't have the ability to judge things that pertain to this life? Uh, You see, the church doesn't go to the world begging to be legitimized by the world, as if somehow the church has to justify herself before men. We don't have to justify ourselves uh, or our existence before the world. In fact, it's the other way around. Human courts draw their authority and their legitimacy from God. Every human court, every human magistrate draws their authority from God. And the church is closer to God than they are. So we ought to be able to take care of our own matters without delegating these issues down the ladder, so to speak. 
You see, in, in all things, we're not trying to make the church somehow fit in and conform to the world and suit the world. We are trying to, our mission is to conform the world to Christ. But it seems like we've always got this kind of uh, aw shucks kind of, kind of attitude when it comes to dealing with the world. Like we, don't, like we don't really belong here. We don't know our place. And what Paul is doing is giving them this confidence that in fact, you do have a position in the world of judgment over all things. Things. Both this chapter and the last have to do with the church's authority. In the last chapter, we talked about this um, man who was committing adultery with his father's wife in broad daylight, in, in wide open view of everyone. And the church wasn't doing anything about it, thinking perhaps they couldn't do anything about it. And here we have this issue where people are dealing with their private disputes and taking them public. And he's still encouraging them, look, this is your jurisdiction. This is your, this is your problem. This is what you are put here to take care of. So Paul is in the middle of one of his typical lists. You know how Paul lists rhetorical questions. And, and in verse 4, he, he's carrying this on. He says, if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Um, what, what, what's going on here? Why, when you have cases between each other, do you appoint people who have no standing in the church to be your judges? That is, unbelievers. He continues, is there not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between the brethren? You, you don't have one person who can make a decision here. Nobody, nobody in the church can do it. How is that possible? And of course, this question is dripping with irony and maybe a little bit of sarcasm as Paul has already addressed the fact that they are so puffed up with their own wisdom. And now he's coming back to them and saying, oh, you wise guys, you don't have one wise guy? You don't have one guy who can, who can answer these questions and deal with it? I thought you were a bunch of wise men over there, but I guess you're not wise enough to take care of little disputes. Again, he states it, and it's just in this disbelief. He, he says, maybe if I just say it out loud again, it will make sense. Brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Incredible, he says. I can't wrap my mind around this. This is, this is unbelievable. Recall all of Paul's statements in the letter so far that we've studied. Um, all of his statements about the valuelessness of worldly wisdom. And that's what they're seeking for their disputes. That's what they're looking for, worldly wisdom. The Greek courts are full of people who think the gospel is foolish. And you're going to willingly submit to their judgment? See, there's this broader application here about the Christian being concerned about what the worldly think about anything. We, we don't just thoughtlessly defer to their judgment. That if they say something is right or cool, or if they say something is hateful, or, or bigoted, then it must be, right? Because they hold all the cards. They have all the wisdom. They have all the power. We don't, we don't thoughtlessly defer to their judgment. And if Paul says they're unqualified to settle a dispute between brothers, then why do we care about what they think about our car or house or shoes or how we educate our kids or how many children we have or what they think about the economy or politics or science or medicine or morality? We don't care. I just simply don't care. There's always this temptation for us, though, to temper our convictions, you know, with just a little dose 
of humanism, just a pinch of modernism, you know, just so that we don't sound too weird, just so we don't sound too far off the reservation. We're so worried about what people think of us, so dependent upon their approval, so envious of their attention. But these people whose attention we're seeking hate the Lord Jesus. They think the Bible's a joke and we want their attention and we want their approval. So no, I really don't care. I really don't care what they think. We don't live in such a way that we try to maintain a level of respectability to the world. Their value system is out of whack. Their, their gauges are all broken. I don't care what they say. I don't care how they judge me or the church or God's word or Jesus. Jesus. They're the ones in need of correcting, not you. Remember that and keep that in focus. And that's what Paul is trying to convince them of here. He tells them that the way they've gotten everything backwards is a disaster. He says, it is an utter failure. That's the language he uses. This is an utter failure for you to go to law against one another. You know who wins when this happens? Nobody. Everybody loses when this happens. Even if you win, you lose. Public lawsuits between Christians damage the witness of the church and the reputation of the church. And you're doing more damage to yourselves by injuring the church than you would suffer by being wronged by other Christians. What they've done in effect is to show the city of Corinth that they're no different from anyone else when it comes to trying to get one up on other people. They've failed to demonstrate what it looks like to do good when someone has harmed you. He says, how much better would it be for you to just accept the wrong? It would be better for you to let yourselves be cheated than to take the matter before civil courts. Um, and, and there's a question that they weren't asking to begin with. The question was, can, can we just let it go? Is that an option? Can we let it go? Is this something that has to be pursued or can we just let it be? Now, sometimes the answer to that question is no. Sometimes the answer to that question is no, I can't just let it go because someone has been injured and something needs to be set right. And then that's why we have church courts and we're gonna uh, go into that in just a minute. But, but sometimes the answer is yes, yes, I can just let it go. You see, Jesus calls us to a sacrificial life for the sake of the world that doesn't get it, that doesn't understand the way of the cross. It's never gonna see it unless it's demonstrated to them by Christians. So Paul's working to convince them. He says, it's much more advantageous. It's much better for the church if you just let it go than if you take it to the secular courts. If you let it go, only you have lost something. And what have you lost that you weren't given in the first place? But if you pursue it and make a public mess out of it, everyone loses. The church loses, the brethren lose, the, the, the gospel loses, the reputation of the Lord Jesus loses. Moreover, the ones who claim to have been defrauded and who are pressing their cases are now guilty of committing robbery themselves. Paul writes, you yourselves do wrong and you cheat by taking things before unbelievers whose judgments can be bought and sold so they can unjustly award you more than you deserve. And what has happened then? Well, you've robbed your brother. Using the court to rob somebody is still robbery. Using the government to rob somebody is still, is still robbery. So you're behaving you're acting no differently from the unbelievers. And we know what is coming for the unbelievers. Let me read verse nine again. Do you not know the, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. You are acting like these. You are putting yourself in this category because all this behavior is worldly and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not only are, you be, uh, are, are they being reminded that they're behaving like the wicked who will be judged, but these people that they're turning to for counsel, that they're turning to for judgment, these people are confused about what it means to be human. And therefore, they're disqualified to render sound judgments. And then the kicker, after this long list of heinous sins that he says, you're, you're putting yourself in this category. Well, verse 11, and such were some of you. You were fornicators, you were idolaters, you were sodomites and homosexuals and, and thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers and extortioners. You were some of these, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You see, one uh, immediate lesson there is that there's no sin that puts you beyond the reach of the saving grace of God. There's no lifestyle that can't be repented of and put behind you. Uh, all of these things were the former identities of the people in the church. And in reminding them of where they came from, Paul is calling them to think about the forgiveness of sins and the forgiveness of wrongs that they have done. And think about that in light of what they have been forgiven. Think about your forgiveness of your brothers. If the death of the Lord Jesus Christ has wiped your slate clean of all these wicked habits and sins and perversions, then honestly, how can we act like we can't forgive the smallest offense? Much better let yourself uh, be cheated than to pursue these things. Now, embedded in this, though, is additional instruction that we need today. You see, once you are washed, you are no longer any of the things in this list or any other things that you could name that are identifiers of wicked uh, anti-Christ lifestyles. Once you are washed, you are not any of these things anymore. Your baptism is your identity. These sinful lifestyles are not. It was critical in Corinth that they understand how they name themselves because how you name yourselves shows whose dominion you are under to name themselves in certain ways, kept their connection with the culture that was doomed. You can't name yourself a, a worshiper of Zeus anymore. You can't do that and come into the church and say you worship the Lord Jesus. You, you can't call yourself a servant of any of the other gods. You can't call, you can't identify yourself because to name yourself that way keeps your connection with that culture of idolatry that is doomed. Now, no doubt, even though they were washed and sanctified and justified, no doubt there were still some that struggled in various ways with faithfulness and obedience, still tempted in all the ways that Paul lists here. But that is no longer their culture. That is no longer their identity. And to name themselves by any of these identities would be to purposely draw in an anti-Christian culture, an anti-Christ culture, draw that into their identity. All these names and all these activities are in their past. And to continue to hold on to them is to weaken the antithesis between the church and the world, between the world of belief and unbelief. If you hold on and grip these identities and hold them close to your chest, you weaken the antithesis between Jesus 
and the world. That's why we cannot accept, and that's why we can't affirm the title gay Christian. Even if you want to add the word celibate to gay Christian, I don't understand how that is helpful if you're truly rejecting everything that this world identifies as gay, which I, we even cringe to use that word, right? But we, we concede it. We'll use the word because we all know what we're talking about. When, when, if you're rejecting everything that this culture identifies as gay, why remain in bondage to or identify with something that God calls us to mortify? Why would we want to carry around something that Jesus died for? So our task is to help people believe what God says about them and what their baptism says about them and not what their sin says about them or what their offenders or what their abusers say about them. You are not defined by victimhood. You are not defined by alcoholism or what the Bible calls drunkenness. You are not defined by your deviant lusts. We don't deny that those things are real. They're very real. We don't deny that things happen to you. They happen. But these things don't name us. These things don't identify us. They don't have dominion over us. How you name yourself will define the way you live. Identifying as a gay Christian will not do anything other than keep you in that lifestyle and drag into your Christian identity something that is doomed and condemned. And why do we bring this up? Why do we talk about this? Well, the fact that a conservative reform branch of the Christian church is having heated debates over this very thing is evidence that we're under judgment. We, we have so domesticated the word gay, so lionized the gay movement as another group of under, underdogs and another oppressed minority that we have to be so delicate around it. We feel like, oh, can you say that? Are you sure? Let's look around. Can you say that? But we wouldn't put this up with any, we wouldn't put up with this with any other category of sin. Would you accept someone who just identified as a fornicating Christian? I'm just a fornicating Christian. That's who I am. That's what I am. I'm an idolatrous Christian. That's, I'm an idolatrous, but, but you're a Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm Christian. But you're idolatrous? Oh, definitely. I'm definitely an idolatrous Christian. Would you put up with somebody who called themselves an extortioner Christian? You know, I was just born with an inclination to steal money. I was just born with this and to take advantage of people. That's who I am. It started in the nursery. I was three years old. This other kid had a truck and I wanted that truck so bad that God must have made me this way to want to take other people's stuff. Well, no, God didn't make you that way. Sin made you that way. Your Adamic nature made you that way. And God has put that in the past tense if you are a Christian. I'm not trying to be silly here and I'm not trying to be goofy. I'm, I'm hoping to drill into us some things that seem to be up for grabs. It seems to be something that is debatable. But you understand when Jesus comes and transforms your life and you're united to him in baptism and you belong to his body, these things are in the past tense. What does verse 11 say? And such were some of you. You're not this any longer. You don't identify as a fornicator. You don't identify as an adulterer or a sodomite or a thief or covetous or homosexual or a drunkard or a reviler or extortioner. Those were your identities. Not anymore. It doesn't carry over. It doesn't, it doesn't last. And that's really important. And if you have any doubts and if you uh, have an argument there, I'd love to carry on a dialogue with you because I think this is, this is, this is a hinge right now for the future of the, of the integrity of the body of Christ in this country. If we break here, 
We're done. We're under judgment and it's over because we've just stopped believing what God says. And because we're under this weight, again, we want them to like us. We want to be woke and hip and cool and we want to be accepted. So we give and we give and we give in hopes that maybe they'll let us talk to them about Jesus. But the fact is they're in full, uh, full assault on everything that God calls good. And they need to be, uh, they need to be humbled. And we pray for that. And, and we really do love, we love them. We love our enemies as Jesus commanded. Uh, but we're not going to let you perpetuate a lie. That's not what we're going to let you do. Um, so back to the bigger message. Paul is not arguing that there is no need for human courts ever. He isn't denying that there's a need for justice to be served when someone's been wrong and the abuser needs to be disciplined. Absolutely. The, the thief or the defrauder really needs to pay restitution. Paul isn't undermining any of that. Disputes are going to occur. It's what happens when humans live together and there must be an orderly way to settle disputes. Israel in the wilderness saw this. So when Moses couldn't keep up with judging matters between the people, he delegated judgment. In Exodus 18, Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. So, so they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Uh, this practice carried over to when the people were dwelling in the land of promise. Every city had elders sitting in the gates as arbiters of legal affairs. Then when the Jews came, um, uh, when the Jews became scattered throughout the world, the synagogues in each city became the court. This process would be carried within the framework of the synagogue. They, they worked to settle their own problems within the synagogue. And now in the church, we have our own courts. We have procedures for handling disputes. You have Matthew 18, go to your brother. If he doesn't listen, take someone else with you. If he still won't listen, bring it to the elders. You have elders, you have a session, you have a presbytery above that. In the CREC, you have a general council above that. There are courts of appeal, and this is established, and this is founded in God's order for society all the way back in, all the way back in Exodus. Our first cry for justice, however, in a matter between ourselves and another believer, must be made to the church and her courts. If we don't do that, then what we're saying is that the church doesn't have an answer to my problems. The Bible doesn't have a solution. I've got to go to the civil courts. In addition to that, it's also important to point out that Paul recognizes the authority of the civil courts. Later on, he's going to, he's going to rely on the appeals process in those civil courts when he's falsely accused and uh, charged in Jerusalem. Civil courts have their God-ordained place. Even while we recognize their weaknesses, we're still thankful for their presence, the way they restrain wickedness, and the way they hold men accountable. Our judicial system in this land is the product of a Western culture that has been discipled by the church. God's law has shaped law in the West. And so there's not a direct comparison between uh, the courts that Paul was speaking of and our courts today. In fact, we can't completely rule out the possibility that a believer might have to face another believer in a civil court today, and that would be an entirely right thing to do. One quick example is if, if a Christian has biblical and legal grounds for divorce, even if the elders of the church support the decision, 
elders can't dissolve marriage. Uh, they'll have to go, the injured party will have to go to the court for relief. And there, there might be custody issues as well that they're going to have to have decided by the courts, protected by the courts. We might think of any number of issues or any number of situations where it's necessary to go to the courts when there's no personal vengeance going on, no personal gain at stake, no great monetary motive. It's just a desire to do what's right, to glorify God and to see justice is served. There may be an element to, uh, to uh, and, and I can imagine scenarios where it, it would be necessary to use the, the civil secular courts. Certainly, if we have a legitimate complaint against an unbeliever, they're not, the, an unbeliever is not going to submit to a church court, and the only way to seek justice is to rely on the civil magistrate. So, so the point of what I'm saying here is 1 Corinthians 6 doesn't teach that Christians are prohibited from ever entering a court under any circumstances, and that you should never pursue having your case sorted out in an orderly way. What Paul is correcting is this litigious spirit that runs to the human courts first without following proper channels within the church. He's, he's correcting this idea also that you can't ever let anything go that you have to pursue everything all the time and defend yourself lest anyone take advantage of you. You see, and this is, this is his point, protecting the reputation of the church, re protecting the body of Christ is your priority. Now, how do we receive this and what do we think? With just the last couple of minutes I have, uh, none of us are taking each other to court that I know of. So, so what do we gain and learn from this? First, whenever we read a negative commandment, don't do something, we ought to try to think about, well, what are we being told to do? What is the positive side of that? So don't take your brother to court in the, in the secular courts. Okay, now well, what should I do? Well, I live generously and I conduct myself in such a way that I'm going to avoid this kind of thing. I don't make foolish decisions when it comes to doing business with other Christians, with other brothers. Um, and this is an important point, I think. Um, and this is, this is the benefit of doing verse by verse, chapter by chapter teaching, is that it gives you opportunities to talk about things that you wouldn't otherwise talk about. So I would never do a sermon on this unless we ran across it. But, but Christians can have some of the most bitter disputes in business. And part of the reason is, I think we believe it to be untrusting and unloving to write things down on paper and agree to it. Uh, we have this naive sentimental attachment to the handshake agreement. We think, oh, we just shook hands and I trust him and he trusts me and it works. Well, sometimes it works, but sometimes we also have unwritten, unexpressed expectations of each other. I thought you were going to do this. And I thought when we agreed to X, you were also going to do Y. We think we're speaking the same language and we're not. And we need to understand that there is nothing unloving there is nothing untrusting about writing things down on paper. It's not a silly formality to write things down on paper if you're going to do any kind of transaction or employment or partnership with another believer. It is the most loving thing you can do to put things down on paper. Write it down and then live by what you've agreed to do. God wrote his covenant down, right? God, God doesn't shake our hands and say, well, I hope that works out. He wrote his covenant down. And so it's not unloving to write things down. So to avoid 1 Corinthians 6 or to avoid Matthew 18 situations, 
Never rely on assumptions and be careful, very careful not to put yourself in a position where a business relationship or, or a transaction is going to hurt your relationship with other brethren. Be very careful about borrowing money from a believer, from a, from a fellow uh, brother in the church. In fact, uh, to the point that I would say almost, almost, almost never borrow money from a brother. And when it comes to selling or buying big ticket items, used cars, appliances, be absolutely upfront about the condition of the vehicle or the appliance. Don't let your brother find out something's wrong with it down the road and then now he's bitter against you because you didn't, you didn't reveal what was wrong with it. Prevent bitterness. Pay Christians what they're worth if they do work for you. Pay them what they're worth. Don't fight. Don't haggle uh, over that. Again, do everything you can to prevent bitterness. Um, and, and so avoid. That's, that's the positive side of this. Avoid this from ever getting this far. The second thing we can gain from this perspective that Paul gives the church uh, is that um, there is a future, there is a judgment coming where everything's going to be settled out. Nobody gets away with anything. And so every present event has to be considered in light of the future. And we have to ask, does this really matter in light of God's judgment of all things? This is so countercultural where, where, you know, we're in this climate where everybody's concerned about their rights. Everybody wants to get what's coming to them. Everybody want everybody else to get what they deserve. Make sure everybody else gets the maximum punishment. And, and I, want, I want to get what's coming to me. And we say, you know what? In the end, God is going to sort it all out. I don't have anything that I wasn't given, so I'm not going to get worked up and feel like somebody defrauded me. In fact, let them defraud me because it gives me an opportunity to respond like a Christian. You see, just because we can sue for restitution and sue for our rights doesn't mean we have to. Uh, and and, and our, our orientation to these things ought to be this, that we're much more apt to get up in arms over someone else's injury, over someone else's offense. We're going to defend someone else who's been injured rather than defend ourselves. You see, Jesus, when he goes to the cross, he doesn't defend himself. He protects his church. He defends his bride, but he doesn't defend himself. Um, and that's, that's a, a key uh, orientation and a key perspective. The crisis here behind Paul's exhortation, the crisis behind this instruction is that the gospel is being forgotten in all of this stuff. The gospel reconciles believers and fellowship with each other in Jesus. But what does the world see when the world sees Christians at better odds with each other who can't resolve their own conflicts? Naturally, the world would see that and say, well, the gospel is ineffective because they can't get along. And in doing this in the most public ways possible, behaving as there's no difference between the life in the world and the life in the church, they've left no separation. Again, they've left no antithesis. There's no difference between the church and the world. So why submit to Jesus? Why join the church? What's the point? What needs to be what needs to be underscored, what needs to be brought out by their behaviors and their thoughts and their words is that God has changed our identity in Christ. He has transferred us over from the old world to the new world. We have been transferred from one way of living to another. And that changes everything, as we'll see as we get deeper into this letter, that we do not belong to ourselves. We don't get just to do, we don't do just whatever we feel like doing without processing it as subjects of King Jesus. We always ask before any Anything. Does this please Jesus? Does this build up the church 
or does it tear her down? Every action, every decision, every day, does this please the Lord? And that's how we live. That's not how they were living. And that's why Paul calls them to faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to impress upon us this very thing that we live to please you because you've given us everything. You've given us life. You've given us an eternity with you. You have given us uh, uh, joy and blessing and protection and comfort. So Father, we in fact must live every day um, in, in a way that pleases you and we seek your face all the time. So by your Holy Spirit, give us the strength to do this. And so, well, and so may we show and reflect your light to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.